Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Why does Governor Jerry Brown support Kamala Harris for U.S. Senate? She's strong, she's intelligent, she knows what she's doing. And the experience of bringing environmental lawsuits, bringing lawsuits against corporate malfeasance and banks gives her that broad spectrum of experience. Join Jerry Brown, the Sierra Club, and the California Democratic Party. Vote Kamala Harris for Senate. She's fearless for the people. I'm Kamala Harris, and I approve this message. From Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, and this is Women Belong in the White House. In this four-part miniseries, we're charting Vice President Harris's path to her current role through the barrier-breaking positions she held along the way. We're exploring what it means to build a pipeline of leadership and talking to folks who could one day follow in Kamala's footsteps. For those of you who have long been Women Belong in the House listeners, we've spent a lot of time together talking about the House of Representatives. Today, we're heading down the hall to the other chamber of Congress. Let's talk about the Senate. As we discussed last week, Kamala Harris went from being District Attorney of San Francisco to Attorney General of California. If her political trajectory had stopped there, it would have been an impressive career. But it didn't. From the Attorney General's office, she turned her eyes to Washington. In order to talk about how Kamala Harris's background prepared her for her next role, let's take a trip back to Civics 101. What does it mean to be a senator? Here's Wendy Schiller from Brown University. She's a professor and the head of the political science department. Well, you're one of 100, you represent one state, you have a colleague who also represents the state, and you are elected at a different time than that colleague, so you have a different trajectory, you have a six-year term, and you are expected to represent the interests of the state, economic interests, ideological interests, uh, partisan opinion interests, and that can be anything from making sure you get funding for clean water or building new bridges or building new roads to fighting for climate change policies that affect you know, your oceans or criminal justice enforcement programs, uh, sexual harassment, women's rights, and uh, also Black Lives Matter and discrimination against people of color. So that's, those things affect senators in different ways depending on the, 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 the mixture of their populations, their physical infrastructure, are they a farm state, are they an ocean state, are they a tourism state, what's the, the, their big business? And that will frequently determine senators' policy issue interests and which committees they seek to sit on. Unlike in the House of Representatives, every state, no matter its population, sends two senators to D.C., In order for legislation to pass, the same bill has to pass by a majority in the House and the Senate. In addition, the Senate has the power to ratify treaties and to confirm or not confirm presidential appointments. That goes for cabinet secretaries, and it also goes for nominations to the Supreme Court. It is my honor and privilege to announce that I will nominate Judge Brett Kavanaugh to the United States Supreme Court. 
Ashanti Golar, president of Emerge and host of the Brown Girl's Guide to Politics podcast, spoke to this important responsibility as a check on the power of the executive branch. They are the people who do the confirmations. That's one of the biggest roles that they have. They confirm the Supreme Court justices. We've had numerous fights over the past year about who those people are. And they are the people who are going to be confirming the cabinet secretaries for the Biden-Harris administration. So you want to be electing people who share your values. It truly matters, you know, how they vote on those positions. With women, we still need a lot more women senators. It's the same with the executive roles. We don't have a lot of women still running for those roles. We don't have a lot of women of color running for those roles. With the elevation of Vice President Harris, we now have no Black women in the Senate, which is really upsetting. So we have a long way to go just overall with women's representation at the United States Senate level. I want to repeat what Ashanti just said. With Vice President Harris's inauguration, there are now zero Black women in the U.S. Senate. The diversification of the Senate has lagged significantly behind the U.S. House. That's problematic in a body that's supposed to represent the American public. Differing perspectives add value to important legislative conversations. Here's Kelly Dittmar, Associate Professor of Political Science at Rutgers Camden and a scholar at the Center for American Women and Politics. You know, one thing I often point to is in political science, this concept of uncrystallized interests, right? Like we don't know what effect you're gonna have and what effect that diversity is going to have until that debate comes up. And so there are gonna be so many instances in which you can't even anticipate the value of having a Native American woman in the Senate or having somebody whose parents were undocumented or something like that in the Senate until that debate happens and their voice is key to making the rest of the senators recognize something that they totally missed before because of their status or their privilege. And we know that for most of U.S. history, there has been that sort of blinding aspect of of privilege in our highest levels of office that have meant that we haven't seen or incorporated some of the things that are necessary in public policy. So why is progress lagging in the Senate? I asked Professor Schiller for her thoughts. So the Senate has not really kept up with diversity. And as you've described really so well during this broadcast, the pipeline getting to the Senate is hard. There's a lot of competition. It's a hard thing to accomplish. And so if we think that there are structural, if we know that there are structural barriers, particularly racist and gender structural barriers, which we, I think, all accept, then that gets even harder. It's hard to begin with, and then you've got all these other barriers. So it's it's a surprisingly good fact that the percentage of women in the Senate is so high, but there are, you know, 51% of America is female. So they're still way behind. But you have a lot more delegations that are all female. So you have New Hampshire that's all female. Um, you have Minnesota that's all female. You have Washington State that's all female, just, just to name a few. And that's, that's no small thing. Senators are statewide positions. That means candidates have to convince a whole lot more people to vote for them than if they were running for the House of Representatives or any role that serves just a portion of the state. 
Here's Melissa Watson Ward, Executive Director of Emerge South Carolina, an organization that trains women to run for office. You know, I think sexism is still there. It is a real thing. And for some people, it's hard to envision the idea of a woman serving in a leadership role like senator or president or vice president. Racism is still a real thing. But having a network like the Emerge Network to support our candidates as they are running can help overcome some of that. And we're seeing women and women from all backgrounds stepping up to run, even even facing the sexism or, or racism that they may experience in their own districts. You know, we want to get to a point where it's not the first anymore, where we're not making these announcements, but we are still breaking down barriers, even at the local level. Women, and particularly women of color, still face hurdles when it comes to running for all levels of office. A bigger role representing more people means the challenges are greater, too. I think it's a different, a different race. You know, when you're running for a district, and particularly a district that maybe resembles your, you more in demographics, that may be more attainable than running at a statewide level. Running across a state can be very hard because you're not just trying to get a couple of thousand people to vote for you. You're getting everyone in that state to try to vote for you. We just need to provide the support for women. As we're seeing women on the ballot, we need to provide the support for them. We need to encourage the women who are currently serving in our state legislatures who are currently serving in the U.S. Congress in the House to run for Senate. And when they're on the ballot, we need to provide that support for them. We need to volunteer for their campaigns. We need to donate to their campaigns. It costs money to run. For better or worse, it's going to cost money to run. And it's going to cost a lot more to run for a statewide position like Senate than it would for a House position. So if we are serious about truly obtaining gender parity, and making women more equitable or, or equal in, in representation, we have to put our money where our mouth is and support those candidates, volunteer for those campaigns, work on those campaigns to help get those women elected to office. As I've said in each episode of this mini-series, Kamala Harris's path is just one of many potential paths to the top of U.S. politics. If you want to run for office, you don't need to check every box that Vice President Harris checked. If you feel called to serve, please do so. We need more people to step up and throw their hats in the ring. That said, Kamala's path certainly was a successful path. If we want to expand the pipeline of women running for Senate, it's worth looking at why that is. Kamala Harris prevailed in a statewide election before she ran for Senate. She had honed her skills as a candidate and had proven her chops when it came to fundraising. She also was ready when the position opened up Timing is no small thing in politics. Here's Melanie Rommel, executive director of Emerge California. Melanie also worked on Kamala Harris's Senate campaign and served as Senator Harris's deputy state director. I think, too, is a really strange thing in California because I grew up with two U.S. senators who were women. So <laughs> in California, we didn't see a change for over two decades in Barbara Boxer and Diane Feinstein. So I think kind of coming from a place where maybe hoping that that continued to see women serving as our California senators, and she ran against a woman for U.S. Senate too. So I think that the run for attorney general, which I, after governor in California is, I would say, the next coveted most powerful uh, position amongst our statewide offices that, that, again, kind of flexing your 
big, big campaign muscles, you know, really bleeds into the, the run for U.S. Senate. And it, it also came at a time where you had to be prepared because, you know, no one really knew when Barbara Boxer was going to retire. So that's another piece of politics is not just running when the position's open, but what does it look like for women who can pivot really quickly to run for that next step? I think that's also a piece that we need to look at, especially in California and state houses where there's going to be a lot of turnover. You know, do you currently as an elected official have the resources to pivot really quickly to be a front runner for a campaign that's unexpected? I'm starting to see that more and more. The fact that Kamala Harris came from a criminal justice background was also, once again, helpful. Here's Wendy Schiller. Well, it's interesting. Amy Klobuchar was also a prosecutor uh, from Minnesota. I I think it gives you a particular style. I think, you know, Kamala Harris may have not succeeded in the presidential debate, but she's an excellent debater. She has excellent presence. She, She used her platform on the Judiciary Committee in hearings to demonstrate her expertise in sort of dissecting questions or interviewing judges. And she carries herself really well with authority. You have to do that to be successful in court. You have to persuade a judge and or a jury. So the skills you have to be good at, skills you hone as a prosecutor or an attorney in general, a litigator, but really a prosecutor. And this is a style and it's a masculine style, you could argue. And it helps, I think, balance uh, the women in the eyes of people who don't necessarily want a senior uh, executive in their state or a leader to be female. But if they have a style that is prosecutorial, that means they're commanding, they have their facts and evidence and they have presence. That goes a long way to reassuring voters that they will be good leaders. So there's a real direct correlation between the skill set that you need as a successful prosecutor or attorney general and how you appear to voters and what kind of confidence they have in you to be their leader. Sir, I'm sure you prepared for this hearing today and most of the questions that have been presented to you were uh, predictable. We discussed the uh, basic uh, parameters of testimony. Is that policy in writing somewhere? Uh, I, I think so. The policy is based... Did you ask that it would be shown to you? Uh, Have you discussed Mueller or his investigation with anyone at Kasowitz, Benson, and Torres, the law firm founded by Mark Kasowitz, President Trump's personal lawyer? uh, Be sure about your answer, sir. uh, Well, I'm not remembering, but if you have something you want to... Are you certain you've not had a conversation with anyone at that law firm? While her background set her up for success in these moments, the media attention that followed certainly had additional perks. Kamala Harris came in at a time that was sort of coming off the the Obama presidency uh, in some ways, or, or, you know, sort of working with the Obama presidency and thinking, you know, okay, how do I make the best of this? How do I make the most of this? And also being, um, you know, a representative who went after Republicans. I mean, she took on that mantle. And senators can either be what we call show horses or workhorses, meaning they're behind the scenes doing a lot of legislation and securing benefits for their state, or they're more public. They're in the the public eye and they seek publicity. And those tend to be uh, broader partisan senators, senators who carry the party's mantle, so to speak, who who can distribute the party's messaging. Uh, And that's really, I think, the, the job that Kamala Harris sought and did for the party, to do as senator. So she doesn't she didn't did not have that many concrete accomplishments for the state of California before she became vice president, 
But then again, Barack Obama didn't have very many concrete accomplishments for the state of Illinois before he became president. So it's not unusual. Uh, if you're lucky, it works out for you. There are many ills to speak of when it comes to the amplification of politics via social media. Perhaps a silver lining in the rise of political Twitter is increased awareness of women in the Senate doing their jobs and doing their jobs well. Amanda Hunter, executive director of the Barbara Lee Family Foundation, spoke to that point. My boss, Barbara, talks about this because she's seen it happen. When she started doing this work, she thought that women governors would be the pipeline to the presidency and that women governors and women mayors of large cities were top of the fold and on TV. And we've seen that this year a little bit with COVID more so. But with the Senate, especially with the advent of social media, Senators are national figures now in a way that they probably were not more than 20 years ago. And so Senator Harris, when she was a senator, went viral a number of times, as we've seen a number of women in Congress do with her tough questioning. I think Congresswoman Katie Porter is another elected from California that has also gone viral with her whiteboard, kind of leaving men speechless. It's one thing to talk to outside experts, but I wanted to get some first-person intel. So I spoke with former Senator and former Attorney General of North Dakota, Heidi Heidkamp. Stay tuned after the break. Women Belong in the White House is brought to you by Emerge. Hi, my name is Jill Barkley Roy and I'm the Affiliate Director at Emerge. For the past 15 years, Emerge has worked tirelessly to recruit and train Democratic women to run for office and win at every level of government. We have grown from a single program to a national organization with 27 state affiliates, more than 4,000 alums, and with more than 400 winning their races this past November. It is time for our organization to move into the next phase. So we are expanding our reach and readying 100,000 women of the new American majority, black, brown, and indigenous women, women of color, LGBTQ plus women, young women, and unmarried women through training and a powerful network. Since 2016, we have seen some of the most diverse groups of candidates and subsequently some of the most diverse classes of newly elected officials in the history of the United States, but we still have a long way to go. For far too long, our elected officials have not looked like the people they represent and emerges on a mission to change that. Right now, less than 1% of elected officials are LGBTQ+. And as a member of that community and an Emerge alum myself, I know how important it is that we increase the number of women like me in elected office. The new American majority is the future of our country and Emerge will be there along the way to make sure we have a voice and a seat at the table. To find out more about how you can learn to run for office, please visit EmergeAmerica.org. That's E-M-E-R-G-E, America dot O-R-G. Heidi Heitkamp started her career in politics as a staffer. She became a public official by serving as the state's tax commissioner and then as attorney general. She ran for governor and lost before running for the Senate. 
in 2012, kind of ironically, full circle, when Ken Conrad decided not to seek re-election, he asked me to run for his seat. And I thought, well, what's the worst thing that happens? You drive around North Dakota for years seeing old friends and do it a little campaigning, talk about things you care about. It's not an understatement to say it was the surprise race of 2012. So I was able to win um, and then serve for six years, but could not secure re-election. So that's why the former is in front of my title. But the experiences that I had from state government, economics, being tax commissioner, to North Dakota's attorney general, which is a very diverse position, to United States Senate, I felt like all of those experiences really um, gave me an opportunity to be very diverse in my interests. And so, you know, I've had a great life. And the end, Thanks to the honor that uh, the voters of North Dakota bestowed on me, I've had a chance to serve. I asked Heidi how her time as AG helped prepare her for her time in the Senate. I think my previous experience, and, and I'm, not, I'm not dissing other people, but I think if you came from the House, I don't think you really knew your state all that well. And I knew my state very, very well. I knew the economics of my state. I knew the, the social and, uh, you know, domestic problems that we had, I think I was very well prepared. So I could sit in the banking committee and understand banking because I had served on the board of the Bank of North Dakota. I could then go to Homeland Security and talk about what we needed to do on the border and inter, interagency cooperation and law enforcement because I had run a law enforcement agency. Senator Heitkamp had championed victims of domestic violence throughout her career. It was one of the reasons she ran for attorney general in the first place. At each stage of her political path, she was able to affect change in a different way on that issue. I think that my interest in children's issues, my interest in protecting women and children, really came out of that work as attorney general. Uh, a great example where that carries forward is I led the effort in the United States Senate to address childhood trauma because we know that so much of what we see in healthcare, so much of we see in the criminal justice system is really born out of violence when people are children, abuse when people are children, and that the need to address that as a preventative measure. So it's kind of like every step was a little more upstream. And by that, I mean a little more looking to how do we do prevention and not how do we just simply prosecute crime. A major difference between the previous positions we've discussed and U.S. Senator is that each senator is just one member of a larger governing body. In order to pass legislation, they have to work as a group. When I got to the Senate, I think my biggest frustration was that it didn't seem like individual members had much control. And when you're the attorney general or the governor, you wake up in the morning and you set your own agenda. You know, what you say goes that day, what, what you believe is, is critical um, in terms of priorities are what you get to deal with. It's the advantage of being an executive. All of a sudden, it was like, I, 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 this is a story. I had this idea, and I can't even remember what the idea was, but I approached a, a sitting member in my own party, and I said, I have this idea if we do this, blah, 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 blah. And uh, he said, that's a really good idea, but it'll never happen. And I thought, that's the difference from when I came. If I had a good idea when I was in the tax department or if I had a good idea when I was attorney general, I could make it happen. And you can't make things happen easily in Washington, D.C. as one of 100 United States senators. 
unless you're in leadership. And even then, it's difficult. But as we saw last episode, women who are attorneys general have more often gone on to become senators than what may otherwise look like the next logical executive position, governor. We'll talk about this more in our next and final episode of the series. Former Senator Heitkamp said she got much more pushback about not looking or being right for the part when she ran for governor than when she ran for Senate. And she wasn't alone. At one point in the Senate, when Sandberg came after she had done the the book Lean In, you know, I, I went to her meeting because I wanted to make the point that over half of the women in the Senate had run for governor and not been successful at the time. Part of the challenge may be that there are still many states that have not had a woman serve as governor. Nowhere in the country has a black woman served in that role. The Senate may still be a bit of a boys club, but women in leadership positions have helped to reshape the chamber by inspiring other women to join them. One of the things that you need to realize within the Democratic caucus, there is an incredible opportunity for people to serve in leadership. So you take Debbie Stabenow, who's in leadership, Patty Murray, who's in leadership, Barbara Boxer was was chair of a committee when we had control. And so, you know, Diane Feinstein, we can go through. So even though it may seem like a boys club, Probably over half of the committees were controlled by women, and that's going to continue because Democratic women have a great deal of seniority. And and so I think as we see women in those roles, you know, serving as the chair of commerce, which, um, you know, Maria Cantwell will, chair of help, you know, those committees are all really, really important. I think that that sends a, a louder message and gets more women interested in running. As politicians rise through the ranks, they're increasingly able to build ladders for those climbing behind them. Women breaking barriers help to destroy stereotypes of who is right or who looks like a particular role. They're also able to actually support others running. California Lieutenant Governor Eleni Kunalakis has been able to do that in her political offices. She served as ambassador to Hungary under the Obama administration. Sometimes it's a matter of when you're the boss and you're looking to hire that you have it within your power to make a difference. I'll tell you one story when I was in Hungary that was really a good lesson for me. My deputy chief of mission would winnow down our hiring to just the top three and bring those candidates to me for final approval. And we had a senior position opening And he brought three names. The first two were men and the third was a woman. And I said, okay, well, walk me through. He said, well, the first guy he put in for a job here in Budapest, uh, he's a State Department superstar. We'd be lucky to get him. I said, well, what makes him so good? Well, everybody says he's a real up and comer. Okay, who's the second guy? Oh, solid guy, good interview. I I liked him. I think you do a good job. And I said, okay, well, what about this third candidate? Yeah, yeah, she's, you know, she didn't do a great interview. One of the people who was supposed to send a recommendation didn't, you know, that's a bad sign. (laughs) Like, uh, yeah, but um, she's okay. And I said, okay, well, um, I'm looking at her profile here. It looks like she actually already speaks Hungarian. He said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, she served in Hungary before and she speaks Hungarian. Well, it was 
part of the job that does a lot of outreach. So having this very difficult language is a huge strength. He said, well, the one thing is that, you know, she did say she, she had the flu on the day that I did the interview. And I said, well, why don't you go back and talk to her again? So he goes back, he comes in, he says, she's great. I did this interview, you know, she's great. And she already speaks Hungarian. So we hired her and she was marvelous. You know, my deputy is not a sexist guy, but it's very easy to fall into those kinds of traps as he did where the most qualified person who happened to be a woman was put at the bottom of the list. And I recognized that it was in my power to point it out. I didn't tell him to hire her because she was a woman. I just had him go back circle back and look at it again. So that is the kind of thing that women can do for one another. And so in my whole career, and I was in housing and construction for 18 years, very male dominated. Whenever I was feeling as a woman that I wasn't getting a fair shake, the one thing that always made me feel better is if I turned around and helped another woman. When Eleni returned from Hungary and had to figure out what came next, she was able to lean on the support of a woman she had come to know and trust while rising through the world of politics, the one and only Kamala Harris. So Kamala and I met when she was district attorney in San Francisco. And we, a friend of ours said, you know, you two ladies need to know each other. You have a lot in common. Uh, and we started going out and having lunch together and, you know, I think that happens sometimes when you're a professional woman and you come up through the ranks, you need new friends who are going through similar experiences. And we sort of found each other. She ran for AG. I went off to become ambassador in Hungary. Um, I would come home periodically. We would go out and have lunch. Uh, I remember right after I came home permanently, I was in Hungary for three and a half years. We went out to lunch and she was helping me figure out, you know, what do you do next? I'm mid-career, I'm in my mid-40s and I've already served as a senior U.S. government employee. What do I do? And she was really something. She said to me, Eleni, whenever a woman is in between jobs, there is this feeling that can set in that other people can make you feel small. Don't let anybody make you feel small. And I was at the time kind of taken back by it because I'd just gotten home. Who could make me feel small? I was a former United States ambassador. But then I started seeing some of my male colleagues get appointments to boards, appointments to think tanks, and no offers were coming my way. And I had to dig in and get in there and find my way. And yeah, I, I know that it was harder for me to find the next act uh, than it was for some of these male colleagues I'd worked for. It was, it was something to experience that. But I remembered her ringing in my ear, reject anyone trying to minimize you. You know, she's that kind of friend. Running for office is hard, no matter who you are. Women face added hurdles. Women of color face even greater challenges. It's vital for candidates to have support systems. That can help to increase the probability of victory for everyone. Kamala and Delaney were there for each other as a source of strength and credibility in each other's most recent elections. 
So fast forward, and of course, I was very involved when she was running for president, very involved when she was running for Senate, and she was extremely involved when I decided to run for lieutenant governor. She endorsed me a year before when there was a crowded field of Democrats, and I had never run for office before. And she, as a senator, was willing to put her name next to mine. She was all over my literature. When I first started out, it was... It was the cornerstone of my campaign. Like, you never run for office before. Why should we vote for you to be lieutenant governor? Well, Kamala Harris is voting for me. She endorsed me. You know, it was incredibly helpful in my campaign. But then when it was a question uh, as to whether or not Joe Biden would pick her to be vice president, on this question of whether or not she was too ambitious or she wasn't a good team player kind of thing, That's when I had an opportunity to organize in support of her. So I called all of her friends in California because she has a lot of friends in California. That conversation that I had with her that was so important and inspiring to me, she has those kinds of relationships with people all over this state because she invests in those relationships. There's power in numbers. Alani is the first woman to be California's lieutenant governor. But someday, hopefully, we won't be talking about firsts when it comes to women in office. To make that happen, it sure is helpful for those who've made it to reach down and help others up. Vice President Harris has done that with peers and with others we've heard from already this season, serving across the country. Here's Heidi Heitkamp again. I have incredible hope that um, we will address some of the systemic issues that create inequality in this country. And so it's not so much that she's the first woman vice president, it's that it's Kamala, and I know her, and I know her heart, and I know she'll be great. But it's one step further, and I'm praying and hoping for a time where we don't have to talk about first, where we can just recognize her for who she is as a person and not as a woman. But in the meantime, I would be lying if I didn't say I teared up when she took the oath of office, thinking we took one more step forward. Next time on Women Belong in the White House, it's all about the Veep. We'll talk about the particularly powerful role Vice President Harris has to play in the Senate and how that might help her break that highest glass ceiling. We'll also feature the story of another woman vying to be the first. Women Belong in the House is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Liz Smith and Grace Lynch, and executive produced by me, Jenny Kaplan. Special thanks to Carmen Borca Carrillo. Talk to you next time. I want to tell you about another WMN show I think you'll love. Most Americans know firmly where they stand on reproductive rights. But how did we get here? How did abortion become one of the most contentious political debates in the country? That's where Ordinary Equality comes in. From Wonder Media Network, Ordinary Equality co-hosts Jamia Wilson and Kate Kelly are unpacking the history of abortion, from before the Founding Fathers to Roe v. Wade, all the way to present day. They're seeking to understand why everything related to women's rights does indeed seem to come back to abortion, and how abortion access is tied to our fundamental rights and freedoms, even more than you think. Listen and subscribe to Ordinary Equality wherever you get your podcasts.